0: Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. Matthew 9, 18 to 26 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. You may have heard the name George Keith. George Keith was an investment banker. As he drove his BMW down the road one evening, he heard a clunk, sounded something like that. At least that's the sound he made for the mechanic, right? His BMW was stuck in first gear, he couldn't get it out. And so he decided, there's only one thing I can do, I have to take it in to the mechanic, to the dealership the next morning, it was brand new. And so he canceled his meeting that he had at 9 o'clock the next morning with a potential client and instead took his BMW into the dealership to get it fixed. The next day, when his time arrived for his appointment to take his BMW in, he sat in the dealership and watched as the planes on September 11th, flew into the World Trade Towers and hit the very floor that his meeting was supposed to take place on. You can find all of these kinds of stories online of things that happened around uh, 2001, September 11th, 2001, of people that had just near misses that would have been in the building, had some crazy thing in their life not taking place, whether it was a break that they took with one of their friends or a a commute to work that took much longer than was expected or a, a traffic diversion that put them on a new route that caused them to be late for work and arrive after the World Trade Towers had already been attacked. See, sometimes temporary difficulty, like the one George Keith faced, puts us in a more advantageous position that we're unaware of previously. This morning we're looking at our text in Matthew and we're going to see two afflicted people. One is a a dad who has lost his daughter and who comes to Jesus in what amounts to really a, a prayer to him, begging him for his help. The other is a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who comes to Jesus in desperation. For both of these people, their affliction has produced in them desperation and dependence on Jesus. Let's look at our text in Matthew 9, 18-26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. You'll remember some months back, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, we uncovered the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the meaning of the term poor in spirit isn't, and it doesn't have anything to do with the size of a person's bank account. It's not poor in flesh, it's poor in spirit. What Jesus is getting at is it's about the person's level of dependency upon God. They're trusting in God to provide everything that they have. So just as a poor person would be totally dependent on others to provide, so someone who is poor in spirit would be dependent on God to provide everything for him. So the person that is poor in spirit, then, is the one that inherits the kingdom of heaven. And as I said back then, the Beatitudes, I think, are best understood as a, 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 a way of understanding the kind of character that is expected of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So these are the kinds of things that are to describe us and our character as those who call ourselves Christians. So the poor in spirit, the kind, the kind of poor in spirit attitude, so to speak, is demonstrated to us throughout this Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see it a number of times appear in the Gospel of Matthew through various characters that appear on the scene. So many characters will pop up on the scene and they'll demonstrate for us what it's like to be poor in spirit. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to call a bunch of children to him. He's going to call them. You've you've heard this, I'm sure. You've heard of this story where Jesus calls the children to him. He uses children, then, in, later on in the book, as an example of what it means to be poor in spirit. So then he he refers to the people that are poor in spirit as little ones, with children as their example. Just as children are dependent on the adults around them for their status in society and to provide for them, so the Christians are to be dependent, or the little ones are to be dependent on God for everything. It's just like someone who is poor in spirit. And so we're now entering into Matthew chapter 9 in this third series of three miracles apiece. It's really like a trilogy. Think about it like that. It's a closing trilogy of miracles here in chapter 9. And You can see, especially if you've been with us, in uh, it, since the beginning of chapter 8, we saw three different trilogies of miracles. We're entering our third one now. We've already seen two different trilogies of miracles. And this set of miracles that we're about to start looking at, starting with these two miracles today, uh, is is a good bit different than the ones that have preceded it. You'll remember all the way back to chapter 8, at the very beginning of chapter 8, the first three miracles that we see there are really about healing the sick. You have the the leper who comes to Jesus who needs healing. You have the centurion's servant who is paralyzed and uh, sickness has brought about paralysis and uh, he wants Jesus to heal him. Peter's mother-in-law who is laying there with a fever Jesus comes in and heals the sick. And then the next set of miracles that takes place in that uh, the next trilogy, if you will, is really about Jesus conquering the spiritual forces in the world. So He uh, steps out on the, on the sea and calms the wind... A a spiritual force there, things that you can't see that are causing commotion. The wind obeys him, and then he casts out a legion of demons in two men on the other side of the seashore. And then he comes back to Capernaum and he heals the man that has paralysis. But we said that 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 miracle really is about Jesus' authority to forgive sins, about to heal people from sins. Well, now we're in this third set, and you'll see, you'll notice that there's a few differences here. For one, the nature of the physical problems that Jesus is dealing with are much more severe and what many think to be incurable kinds of diseases. Things that just absolutely cannot be cured. And then the second is that that each of these uh, focuses on the reaction of the crowd. You're going to see that in here too that the reaction of the crowd begins to spread. First it's throughout the district that we're going to see today, and then later it will be throughout the entire region and throughout the entire land. So first it's the district that they're in and then through all of Israel. And so in this section, everything is ratcheted up a couple of notches. Everything is taking it up. So our passage this morning is perhaps the most intense of the three miracles that we're going to see. In this text this morning, I want us to make three observations that we see about Jesus here, and there are a number of things um, that these observations actually mean for us as Christians as we think about who Jesus is. And so I also want to take just a moment to talk to the children that are in the the. Uh, worship with us this morning. So if you're a child in here, you probably have a a bulletin, a child's bulletin. You got a little space there to make notes and to draw funny pictures and things like that, right? Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a point to the adults. It's going to be an observation to the adults, and they're going to write it down. And then for the kids, I want you to draw a picture with us, okay? I'm going to tell you what to draw, and I want you to draw the picture, all right? Now, adults, if you want to draw the picture, too, You can, okay? All right. Kids, if you want to give me your bullets, I have a place in my office. I can hang them up uh, at the end. So this is going to be both for the adults and for the children today. Okay, here we go. The first observation that I want us to make in our text is that Jesus is the master of time. Jesus is the master of time. So if you're a child in here and you're drawing pictures, you're going to draw a picture of Jesus, okay? Draw a picture of Jesus, whatever you think he looks like. And he's gonna out in his hand, out here to the side, uh, a picture of a clock. Okay? Picture of Jesus, and then with a picture of a clock in his hand. All right. Now look at verse 18 with me. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So the the story of this miracle opens with a person that's introduced to us as a ruler, and he comes up to Jesus, and he kneels before him. And we're not told, at least in Matthew, what kind of ruler this is, but we are told in Mark and Luke that his name is Jairus, and there it's told to us he is one of the rulers of the synagogue. And so, We think these kinds of people, these rulers of the synagogue, were, by and large, they were lay people. At least that's what we think. And they had some sort of command over the synagogue and the kind of worship that would take place in there. They had some control over the people that would come to the synagogue. And we see them appear again several times throughout the Gospels and in Acts. And we see in Acts chapter 13, as Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, There it says the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so essentially the the rulers of the synagogue there it seems, at least in Antioch, have some sort of control over the teaching ministry that happens there in the synagogue. They're appealing to Paul and Barnabas come and, and give a word of encouragement. But it's worth noting this because Matthew doesn't tell us anything about Jairus, really. He doesn't tell us his name. Really, he doesn't spell out what his title is, what his role is, what he, what he does. He simply leaves it as ruler. Now, perhaps this is because all of the people knew who Matthew was talking about, or perhaps all of the people knew what kind of ruler Jairus was without Matthew having to mention it. But I think There's more going on here. See, Mark and Luke quote Jairus as saying to Jesus, or or say about Jairus, that he came in and he fell down at his feet and implored him. That's the way Mark and Luke describe it. He came in and he, he... dropped down to Jesus' feet, and he implored him. So you get this image in your mind of Jairus walking up to Jesus and grabbing him around his feet and and really being in a position of begging Jesus. But that's not how Matthew describes it. Matthew says, a ruler came in and knelt before him. And if you were to translate it more literally, it would say, a ruler came and worshipped him. That's literally the words that Matthew uses. A ruler came and worshipped him. Well, you can see what Matthew is emphasizing here about Jairus coming up to Jesus. We, we were told back in chapter 1, you remember, about Jesus being the king. He leads off with this long genealogy about Jesus being a king. And then in the same chapter, in chapter 1, we see the angel come to Joseph and say that that. This baby that's born is going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us. We see in the very next chapter, the Magi come to Herod and they ask him a question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And then Herod goes on his tirade and he starts killing all of these babies that would be competition for him. And all the moments leading up to the point that we're at have Jesus teaching the people what the kingdom of heaven is like and saying He is bringing the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the wording that Matthew uses here is, is, I think, very intentional. He's made the claim that Jesus is king. And now we transition to this scene where a ruler came up and worshipped Jesus. The definition of the word that Matthew uses here to worship means... To express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. To express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. He's saying Jairus in coming up to him who is a, himself a ruler is expressing his complete dependence on a person who, has a, who is in a position of higher authority. Not only does this ruler recognize the authority of Jesus but he also recognizes his complete dependence on Jesus for the healing of his daughter. They're still in Capernaum. There's at least... Early in Jesus' ministry, some recognition of who He is in Capernaum, in His hometown, People are coming to him. They're recognizing his authority and power and they're submitting to it. They're coming to him for healing and it's here in Capernaum that this ruler comes up to Jesus and is expressing his dependence on him. Now we saw something very similar a few weeks ago when a centurion came up and and also came before Jesus and and expressed his understanding of Jesus' authority over uh, his servant who is laying at home paralyzed. We saw Matthew use the exact same word about the leper in the passage Just before it, who came up and he too knelt before him. Same word there, he came and worshipped Jesus as well. Knelt before him, recognized his authority and his power. We saw it after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, where the people of the town came in droves and submitted to the healing that Jesus was there providing. They are expressing their dependence on him, at least for their healing, if not for salvation itself. But this ruler comes and tells Jesus my daughter has died but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now this is somewhat different than what happens in Mark and Luke. In Mark and Luke Jairus comes to, the, to Jesus and he says my daughter's on the verge of death come and, and heal her. And then Jesus gets distracted with this lady we're about to meet in just a few seconds and people come up to Jairus and they say look She's already passed. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. So it's a little bit different than what we get here in Matthew. In, in, here in Matthew, she's already dead. And I think the reason for this change is really important. Matthew is trying to cut to the chase. You can imagine like a boxer would push somebody back into a corner and would just start hitting as fast as he can against the rib cages of his opponent. This is kind of the same thing that Matthew is doing with these three trilogies of miracles. He's laying it on us as hard and as fast as he possibly can, pummeling us in the corner of miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle that show us, that demonstrate to us the authority that Jesus has. So Matthew is cutting to the chase. So it suffices for his purposes to just tell us she's dead. That's what happens in the end anyway. Jesus understands she's dead before he even goes to the house. But do you notice the impact of verse 19? Look at verse 19. You notice the impact of verse 19? She's dead. But what does Jesus do? He gets up without hesitation and goes. And as a matter of fact, his disciples go with him. Well, let's lay that on the so-called faith healers of the day, like Benny Hinn. How ready do you think he would be if you said, my daughter's in a casket, but just wave your coat and she'll get up? How ready do you think he would be to just go up to the casket at the funeral and wave his coat over the casket? Well, he probably wouldn't be because he would immediately be revealed as a two-bit huckster that he is. But you notice the response of Jesus and his disciples. They go without hesitation. There seems to be nothing more final than death. Even for someone who is gaining notoriety for saving people, who are on the brink of death for cleansing people, of diseases, like Jesus is at this point, is there's still something about death that has a note of finality to it. Well, once a person passes, it's over. And i got to say, even in the Gospels, there's just a few times where Jesus actually raises someone from the dead. Just a few times where he raises someone from the dead. It's even pretty unprecedented in the Old Testament when we look at the the prophets. It's a pretty rare thing for someone to raise someone from the dead, though it does happen a few times. Jewish burials took place within 24 hours. So as soon as a person passes, within 24 hours, they're placed in a tomb. We're going to see this even more sped up in Jesus' timeline when he's hanging on the cross There's a Sabbath drawing near. And so they take him down rather quickly and they put him in the tomb for burial. But you know that even right after death, the body starts decomposing very quickly. Rigor mortis sets; it will set in within four hours of death or will begin to set in within four hours of death. The body is placed in a tomb within 24 hours. So even if Jesus were to do the miraculous here and raise this girl from the dead, however unlikely it may be, every second that passes, she feels a little bit more dead than the previous second. I want you to imagine for a moment the feeling of desperation for this father who has lost his little girl. We learn in the other Gospels that she's 12 years old. The feeling that if Jesus cannot do this, then no one can. He's at the end of his rope and he reaches out to Jesus knowing that he can do something about it it's comforting to note that not only does Jesus respond to this man who is in his deepest hour of need, but also Jesus apparently doesn't have a watch. He's not keeping a stopwatch on the situation. Well, uh, how long has she been dead? How much time has passed? And we serve a Savior who remains unaffected by time. Savior who is also time's master. Now, as a mere mortal like myself, I'm a slave to the clock. Everything I do practically has a deadline on it. Everything, every problem I have has to be solved and has to be solved now. But the Lord of all creation is no slave to time. If He spoke into nothingness... There was nothing. And then he spoke into nothingness and all of a sudden there was something. If he did that, then we have to know that he never runs out of time. There's nothing he can't do. The fact that Jesus remains unfazed by the statement, my daughter has just died, means that he's a master of time. See, he doesn't interpret the, that statement to be one of finality, but of potentiality. Not that the curse of sin has claimed another victim, but that the glory of God is about to be revealed. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus has power over even the greatest of illnesses. Jesus has power over even the greatest of illnesses. If you're drawing pictures, adults or children, I don't judge. Picture of Jesus, not only with a clock in his hand, but also with a thermometer in his hand. A clock and a thermometer. You can draw two Jesuses if you want to, or you can just draw the one Jesus with all the things in his hand. It's fine. I don't judge. Look at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter and he's interrupted by this woman who is suffering from a discharge of blood, it says, for 12 years. She comes up behind Jesus, she touches the fringe of his garment. Now, even in this brief account, you can, you can feel a bit of pressure, it seems like, that's happening in this scene. Jesus has to get to Jairus', daughters, or Jairus house to, to heal his daughter, you, you would think. And, and he has to get there without delay, we presume. He needs to get there quickly. And yet he then experiences a delay as soon as he gets started on the road by this woman where he has to turn and give to her some attention. Now, like the leper at the beginning of chapter 8, we're confronted with the question, is her her illness going to make, she's ceremonially impure, she's unclean, is her uncleanliness going to make Jesus unclean? And we see, absolutely not, just like with the leper, she doesn't make him unclean, his holiness actually transfers down to her. But I think the most challenging aspect of this miracle is Jesus' statement toward her as she healed. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He literally says to her, your faith has saved you. Now this is a a challenge for us to understand. And and Jesus makes the same kind of statement several times throughout the Gospels. Your faith has made you well. Uh, um, A few times in the Gospels, uh, I think sometimes in Acts, there's some statements there uh, similar. Uh, The reason that I think this is challenging is because some people particularly prosperity gospel preachers and and the so-called faith healers that I was talking about before will teach that this means that if a person doesn't receive a gift of blessing or doesn't receive the healing that they're offering, then the problem is them. Well, they just didn't have enough faith. See here, Jesus is saying, you had the faith to be made well, so therefore you were made well. This is why the name it and claim it so-called gospel has made its way and permeated the church pews this name it and claim it idea because name it and claim it is a stand in for the level of faith that you're supposed to have in order to receive healing you understand that? that's how the two are connected that if you name it and claim it that exhibits the kind of faith that this lady had to be healed that's the logic of what they're presenting to you. So you simply name it and claim it. Well, how do I know that you have that kind of faith? How much faith do I have that God is going to heal me, that God is going to give me that job, that God is going to open up that parking spot in Chick-fil-A at noon? How do I know that God is going to do this? How do I know that I have enough faith for Him to act on my behalf? Well... I'll tell you. I have so much faith that I didn't even have to ask. I have so much faith that I just claimed it. I just told God what to do. That's how much faith I have. If you understand faith this way, then there's no room for negative thoughts the kinds of thoughts we all have? There's no room for it. There's no room for caveats. Well, God is sovereign after all. Nope, no room for that. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. No room for if the Lord wills, even though we're commanded to say that in Scripture. No room for that. No, no. Then you don't have faith, you see. There's no room for any other solution than what appears in our eyes to be the best possible outcome. There's no room for it. Well, that just demonstrates a lack of faith. So you tell your friend, God's going to heal you. God's going to heal you. Why? Because there's no room for a lack of faith. God is going to heal you. Don't you start thinking those negative thoughts. He is going to heal you. But of course when you state it, as a matter of fact like that, God is going to heal you, you're putting yourself in the place of a prophet. You're stating in the definitive what God is going to do in the future. That's what a prophet does. Now most people, I don't think are thinking about that when they do that. I think most are thinking, "Well, I'm having faith. I'm demonstrating faith that God is going to heal you. I'm stating it in the affirmative." But we're deeply affected by the prosperity gospel movement even in our churches. It happens in the Baptist church, just like it happens in the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church and all the churches. Even the good Bible believing gospel preaching churches The prosperity gospel movement has affected us. Of course, Scripture doesn't really present faith in this way. On a number of occasions, faith is presented as a gift from God. See in Romans 12.3, which is probably one of the clearest, Paul says, Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It literally is as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. We see it appear in the gifts list in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Where he says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another the faith by the same Spirit. It's presented again as a gift in Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. Their belief and suffering both presented to you as gifts from God. We could go on and list more. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, several others. But the point is that we get this assurance about faith that it's a gift. So how do we understand what Jesus is is saying here? Your faith has made you well. It's that, that faith is the conduit through which a person receives healing. But since faith is first a gift, faith can heal, but it cannot be manufactured by you. Jesus. You can't squeeze your eyes tighter and gain more faith. I can't clench my fist and hold them together. I can't dispel enough negative thoughts to have more faith. I can't name and claim more things. I can't pray magical words or incantations in order to get healing. Faith to be healed, or faith in general, is and remains a gift of God. I want you to imagine for a moment what it must be like to suffer the way this woman has for 12 years. We see in the parallel passages that Jairus' daughter obviously is also 12 years old when she died. So this lady started bleeding back when Jairus' daughter was born. We also know that she had sought medical care and the problem just persisted and it got worse. But what has that produced in her? What has that produced in her? the kind of desperation that has led her to depend entirely on Jesus. If only I can touch the hem of His garment, I'll be made well. That's what it produced. That's what it made. Gives Jesus' words to her a lot of weight. Your faith, a faith that took 12 years to manufacture, has made you well. The aspect of this that so often goes overlooked is that every person who comes to Jesus in this kind of faith is healed. Before you shoot me, hold on. Every single person. I'm going to double down on it. Every single person. See, this is the reason that Jesus can promise blessed are the poor in spirit For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He promises the poor in spirit eternal life. He promises that every person that comes to him like this is going to be healed. There are some that may also receive temporal healing in this life to magnify the name of the Lord, but you understand that they're going to die one day too. What good is healing temporally if all you do is die and you turn into worm food? What good is it? What Jesus is promising, and we'll see this play out, by the time we get to the end of his gospel, of this gospel, is that he will end sickness for all who have faith in him. For everyone who, have fa- who has faith in Christ, sickness will end. The promise of inheritance of the kingdom of heaven is a promise of healing for all who have faith in him. We, of course, focus on the fact that this lady receives healing for her illness. But see, Jesus' words to her are more transcendent than that. He says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has delivered you. This is what Jesus is is coming to do by bringing the kingdom. He's delivering people from the curse that sin has brought to our world. He's saying your faith and dependence on me is precisely the way that you have been delivered from this bondage. Now her temporal healing is a foretaste of deliverance that He is bringing. It's just a sample size of what's coming. Jesus has a power over even the greatest of illnesses. The third thing that I want you to see is that Jesus has a power over death. Jesus has a power over death. So if you're drawing picture of Jesus holding not only a clock, not only a thermometer, but also a tombstone. If you don't know what a tombstone is, ask your parents. They'll explain it to you. Good luck, parents. Uh, 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house... And saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. All that district. So the funeral at Jairus' house had already begun. Remember I said that they bury the body within 24 hours. So they have already begun the mourning process. They've already begun the funeral process. There's an ancient Jewish writer that tells us even the poorest Jewish families were expected to hire not less than two pipers and one wailing woman. Required. But, But Jesus dismisses these people. He says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And of course, they laugh at him. And the first reason they laugh at him, obviously, is because they're professionals. We've been doing this for a long time. And you're to tell us that she's not dead. We know what a funeral is when we see one. But probably the second reason is because there's no record that Jesus has actually seen her yet. How does he know she's just sleeping? But this kind of language that she's sleeping rather than dead points to Jesus' intentions. He's going to go in and actually wake her up. And this language is used throughout the New Testament, most notably in 1 Corinthians 15. So we see it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, when Paul mentions that some have fallen asleep. And if you'll remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's triumphal argument over the resurrection of the dead, that everyone will be raised from the dead. And so he refers to the people that are currently dead, not as dead, but as fallen asleep. Because he's trying to point out to the reality of hope to the believer that you're going to resurrect from the dead. See, Jesus goes to this little girl and he takes her by the hand and she arose. And the report goes throughout the district. But the point that Matthew is making is more transcendent than one little girl at one time in one house. Of one Jewish ruler. He's demonstrating that Jesus has the power to reverse the curse of not only illness, but also of death. That he has the power to turn back time and start it all over. See, in this passage, we see two desperate people one is a ruler and a father. Who comes to Jesus and lays prostrate before him, recognizing his need for Christ to come and lay his hand on his daughter and she will live. The other is a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and both of these individuals exhibit a kind of faith that is entirely dependent on Jesus. That's the point. It's a faith that's entirely dependent on Jesus, a kind of faith that models what it means to be poor in spirit. What does this actually mean for us? What do we do with this? Well, there's many things, but I think at least a couple. First is we're we're not all promised physical healing for our faith. We're not all promised physical healing for our faith. Sure enough, Jesus turns to this lady and He commends her faith and, he, and the woman is healed in accordance with her faith. But not everyone who has that kind of faith ends up being healed in precisely this way. We have all kinds of people in our congregation that are in the midst of suffering, great trial and tribulation. Some I know about, some I don't know about. Some are enduring cancer treatments. Some have given up on cancer treatments. And we've got everything from cancer to bad backs and hurt knees and everything in between. And we could put all of the burden on you. And we could say what Jesus is saying is the reason that you're suffering is because you just don't have enough faith. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the opposite is true. Even for the most faithful, you will die. Every single one of us in this room, if the Lord tarries, we'll die. The question is, what do we do about that? See, if you're in here and you don't believe in Jesus you better be really sure that death is it. Because if not, you're going to open your eyes after you close them in death and you're going to face a judge who is ruler of all, who is master of time, who is master of illness, who is master of death, But for you, the clock will have run out. What are you going to do? The answer is all who have this kind of faith, for them, the clock will turn. There will be a resurrection of the dead. We will dwell with him forever. And all of this can be yours through faith. Through simply believing in Christ. Trusting in Him. Throwing all of your dependence on Him. The second thing that I think this says to us at least is to consider for a moment that your affliction is actually producing in you a greater reliance on Christ And thereby ensuring your inclusion in the kingdom. That your affliction is producing in you a greater reliance on Christ, and thereby ensuring your inclusion in this kingdom. You get that? If inclusion in the kingdom, if those that inherit the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, how how is it produced in you to be poor in spirit except through affliction? Who have you known that has come to Christ that hasn't been first in great need? Sometimes temporary affliction puts us in a more advantageous position. What we right now interpret as affliction, and what we right now see is pain and trial and suffering and needless waste. think in the end we'll see is worth it. So much as it caused us to turn our eyes again toward Christ. Caused us to throw our dependency on Him. If that's what it means to be included in the kingdom, then was it worth it? I know the answer that I'll give In just a short number of years. He's absolutely yes. The Puritan Thomas Watson. Said it like this. When God lays men upon their backs. Then they look up to heaven. God smiting his people. Is like the musicians striking upon the violin. Which makes it put forth melodious sound how much good comes to the saints by affliction when they are pounded they send forth their sweetest smell affliction is a bitter root but bears sweet fruit Christian I want you to consider what your affliction means for your inclusion in the kingdom of heaven We're promised affliction. But for those who cast their dependence on Him, for those who are poor in spirit, we're also promised a kingdom that knows no end. To which Paul says, I think that the suffering compared to the eternal weight of glory, you can't even compare the two. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of us are suffering some we know, some we don't know some suffering with illnesses some suffering at the hands of other people and all kinds of suffering in between Lord I lift them up you would lift up their heads. You would help them to see your mercies are made new every day. Help us to see with fresh eyes the fact that you suffered with us. That you don't sit on a throne in heaven And remain unaffected by the things that are going on in our lives, but you suffered with us, that you suffered for us, and that you have set forward an example of how we are to endure in patient humility. Lord, we confess we are totally dependent on you for everything. And I pray that you make us more so knowing that that's going to mean more suffering. But I pray that you produce in us and in this congregation people who are totally dependent on you for our every need.